So, guys, welcome to the AOR Lives podcast. Uh, for those who don't know, um, this year, because of the global pandemic, we have been unable to run the European Art of Retreat. Uh, we're still looking to find out what's going to happen with that. Um, but I thought instead of it as a co-project, what I would do is I would contact lots of really interesting people in the world of parkour and ask them questions. And um, one of the really cool things about this is I um, was excited that Mark was going to come to the European retreat this year. And he and I were going to actually sit down during the retreat and talk about something close to um, both our hearts, which is coaching parkour in schools. So before I get started about that, let me tell you a little bit about Mark here. Mark Turok is the founder and CEO of American Parkour and a director of the United States Parkour Association. With an early career in finance and technology, Mark discovered parkour while living in London in 2003, helping define the discipline with many of the movement's founders. Mark's brought parkour to the mainstream media through television, high profile performances and advertising from major brands. His latest venture involving bringing parkour to schools and designing equipment that supports the joy of movement that early parkour training can bring to kids. Mark's curriculum and equipment can now be found in 45 schools throughout Washington DC and Maryland. American Parkour is also beginning to implement parkour programs and facilities in summer camps. After reading that number, I went and checked and we're in 39 schools. So you're beating me there. <laughs> Um, as long as I stay one school ahead, just one. One school <laughs> ahead, yeah. Um, so for those uh, who've been kind of following the um, podcast so far, this one's going to be a little bit different because uh, Mark and I are, uh, are both really experts in the field of teaching parkour in schools. So we're going to be talking a little bit about it. Uh, Mark's going to be telling me the US perspective, and then I'm going to kind of reflect the UK perspective and a lot of these ideas as well. And hopefully we'll be able to see areas where there's similarities and areas where there's differences. So let's start with a bit of a softball for you, Mark. I've been collecting people's memories from the early days of parkour. I know that for you, a lot of the early memories of parkour are quite bittersweet, so I don't want you to unpack everything that ever happened. But I do want to know what convinced a tech geek to jump ship and wade into the world of parkour in 2003. So... I, I will try to make this long story as short as possible. <laughs> I had a very fortunate experience while I was training martial arts. My third degree school owner slash instructor quit. And for eight months, I got to learn directly from a seventh degree, which is a practically unheard of thing. Normally fifth degrees teach third degrees, seventh degrees teach fifth degrees. And in that, it's like a fifth degree will get several hours a month of a seventh degree's time. And instead, for eight months straight, I got to learn directly under a seventh degree black belt, which is just, they're very rare creatures. They're one in, one in I don't know, one in 10,000 makes a black belt, one in a million makes a second degree, and, and so on and so on. But one of the most important things I learned from that and something that I try to carry through parkour today is that the most important thing is that we're all on a path and anybody can get on that path and anybody can progress along that path. So I will never be Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, but I can get on that path and I can progress along that path and I can start out as a, as a clumsy white belt and through practice, 
I can get better. And so in late 2002, early 2003, when I saw the David Bell rush hour video, I went, holy shit. Okay. I just, I was blown away in a time when CGI had gotten so good that they could make you believe that a person was doing anything. I saw this and I instantly recognized that this man had no nets, no wires. He was just jumping between buildings. He had developed the confidence and the ability to jump between two buildings and to flip between buildings and to press a handstand on the corner of what they make look like a 60,000 story building, right? And, and I was just so blown away by that. And I think that a lot of our, meaning humans, gut reactions is to be inspired by something, but not motivated. We see it and we go, wow, that's amazing. I could never do it. And so for me, the one fortunate hook that I had was what I had learned from my time with that seventh degree was I'm never going to be David Bell. I know that he is, he's amazing. He is so, so amazing and so physically talented and so mentally there, but I'm on the same path. I may be 10 light years behind on that path, but I'm on the same path. And so that's what really, really drew me in is I saw a, a human being who had developed these incredible skills and level of confidence. And I thought, wow, th this, this is a movement that's gonna change the world. When, when, when people see what humans can do, this is gonna change the face of exercise, of play, of movement. And so I just, I got immersed in it as, as deeply, I just straight in. Yeah. So was that Speed Airman or was that the BBC advert? Or was the uh, first the BBC thing you saw? advert. Yeah. Oh, that was a cool one. Um, and then, so you, you ended up sort of involved in the early days of London scene where so much of it blew up and turned into. Yeah, very much so. So they started out and I, I might not have these numbers exactly right. But the, the first day that a, a bunch of people got together, let's say it was like five or seven people who contacted each other through the internet. Remember, this is before YouTube. This is before Facebook. This is, I don't know if it's before MySpace or not. I don't know if I ever had a MySpace. I think I did. But, <laughs> you know, this is back in the, in the LimeWire days of, of uh, you know, share, sharing music. Not that I ever shared any music. Um, but anyway, so the internet wasn't as much of a, of a global or local connector as it is now. And these, these five or seven people had, had found each other. People like Easy, Bam, Kirby, uh, Acid, uh, the young Cyan guys um, had, had found each other and gotten together to go literally jump off a park bench, right? They had no, no instruction, no idea of what they were doing. They just started doing it. And, and I think that that's uh, super cool. Also, it, it's a place that a lot of sort of angst has come about is people said, well, who are these guys to name the movements? And they didn't, they didn't get together and go, we are the people to name the movements. They went, hey, I'm jumping off this wall and you jumped <laughs> off the wall the same way with one hand and one foot and you did this. 
do we have to say that every single time? And so they just, they came up with names for it, right? So there was no like meaningful intent to destroy the French culture or anything like that. The, the French at the time really were not interested in spreading parkour. There's some not very well documented stuff where they said, this is ours. We don't want to share it. People, other people yeah. won't understand it. We don't want to share it. And so- and It was in French, a lot of it, the original. Like until Jump Britain, no, Jump London, there was so little, yeah, until Jump London, there was almost nothing in English that I can think of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so you know, in the early days, they and then we, I, I went to about the third meetup day, which was about 25 people. Um, and I think I recently found a date. I'm just, this is wrong, but something like May 17th, 2003 or something like that. Let's, let's go with that. Um, and there were about 25 people because the first time there were five or six and they all told a couple friends. And the second time there was like 12 or 15. And by the third time there were 25. And by uh, the seventh meetup we had, uh, Sebastian came along and we called it PK7, S-E-B-E-N. And we rented out a gym in Erith, uh, outside of London. It was like a two hour haul outside of London, but this was the only gymnastics place that would rent the gym to people who wanted to like jump off walls and climb up stuff and, and do some very uh, untalented gymnastics, <laughs> I'll call it, right? These guys were super talented, but it wasn't the structured learning system that gymnastics has. It was, hey, I'm gonna try a flip. <laughs> okay, great, you, you go try a flip. And then I'm gonna try and hit the springboard and, and the vault and, and then do a front flip. Okay, yeah. cool, you have no gymnastics training, go do, a, go do a, a spring punch front off the, off the vault, off the pommel horse or whatever. Um, so yeah. I so love was, these early stories. Yeah, that, that was kind of my beginnings and yeah. What's, what's that, you know what's really crazy about that is that, so you, you only started parkour, that means about 15 months before me? like that time period and like i'm i'm second generation i'm way past but that time period so much happened in just that year alone and it's amazing to kind of go back and sort of try and break down the order of what happened because that tiny period just completely changed all our lives like 2003 oh, yeah. to 2006 like in some huge massive way and it's interesting to kind of just pick apart so what was your first experience like because they were all just it was a really unique moment that we're, ne we're never going to get it back, but it's really nice to just hear everyone's little stories about how they just fell accidentally into this weird and wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, so there's obviously a huge long story of you kind of um, developing parkour coaching, opening gyms and everything else, but I kind of want to fast forward through all of it and take it to a much more modern day question. So what interest you about teaching parkour in schools and why is that one of your lead focuses right now great question i feel that by teaching parkour through schools we're really bringing it to a mass appeal audience and we're giving it exposure in a way that makes it more of an accepted norm than 
a fringe activity. And that's very important to me. I, I, I believe as you know, probably everyone listening does that parkour really has huge benefits for the people who practice it. Everything from balance and proprioception to fall protection, to general awareness, to well-being, mental health, all of those positive benefits, I want to see become a norm that, that people say, oh yeah, this, this, whole, this whole Nautilus machine thing was really stupid. And <laughs> let's get into moving our bodies in ways that benefit us throughout life, mm. right? There are Nautilus machines that make you do things that I would only do in prison. And I just, I don't <laughs> understand that. <laughs> but, but parkour, nat- natural, natural movement, climbing, pulling, pushing, all of those exercises, right? They're, they are natural. They're, they're not natural for us now, which is too bad, right? Mm-hmm. We, are, we are creatures who have been removed from our habitat put into this, this sort of fake habitat, if I can get a little matrix for a moment, right? We've been put into this false habitat that is not our habitat. It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make us healthy. It doesn't keep us strong. A lot of times it doesn't actually motivate or inspire us. It makes us feel worse. And so I want to help get people back to a state of just pure animal bliss just mm-hmm. for me I, I think of a day my favorite thing by the way is is jumping on rocks in a river there is nothing in the world that I enjoy more than that absolutely hands down nothing if it's followed with good smoked barbecue that makes it great but if it's not it's okay <laughs> I just I just want to jump on like rocks and logs and jump across a river and and for me that is parkour I I use my hands and feet. I'm, I'm moving. I am vaulting, balancing, jumping. May not be much swinging in that scenario, but you know, for me, that that is sort of the fun and essence and enjoyment for me of whatever physicality I have. And I think that, especially now as well in the exercise world, so much emphasis is put on the building of your fitness instead of the enjoyment and using of your fitness. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is sort of like cooking and never eating. It's like, great, you, you spent hours grinding out this recipe and then threw it in the trash, right? Yeah. Go out and enjoy life, enjoy all of that physicality you've built. And for me, so sorry to bring it back to parkour in schools. If, if we can instill this kind of love of movement and love of the joy of movement in children, then they'll grow up to recognize the kind of bullshit that the Globo Gym is and, and, and avoid it and, and strive for things that bring about true health and, and happiness. So, and, and, and let me say, I, I, know, I know that I'm shitting on the Globo Gym to people who go to that gym, nothing but love, okay? Go there, do your thing, sweat it out, succeed. That's all I want for anybody is, is to succeed. I do, however, feel there's a better way. And if I could take those people and show them all something, I would. Mm-hmm. But only if they want to do it, right? 
it, it, I'd rather see someone go to the, the Globo gym five days a week than do parkour no days a week. So mm-hmm. I like, um, I definitely empathize with a, lot of, with a lot of what you're saying. And if I can kind of pull it back to schools as well, I hold a slightly uh, perverse fantasy in some ways, which is that my dream is for parkour to be that boring thing you learned in school. Um, I love yes. the idea, like we've actually, we've got some kids now who've been doing parkour their whole lives. So their, their little brother, their older brother was doing parkour when they were two. They started parkour when they were five and they've been doing it for three or four years now. And for those kids, parkour is normal and movement is normal in a way. And we have, we've managed to normalize it to the extent that it, it doesn't have that appeal that it has for us of look at how wonderfully different it is and won't society be better when that is the norm when like being a fit healthy useful human being is the norm and that's when parkour can become interesting because it won't it'll no longer be parkour it'll be 70 different disciplines all based around movement in some way or the other and the thing we brought into schools really changes the human experience that's kind of where i want to go with it um which means i am one of those people who's desperately trying to put himself out of a job always a great way of looking at the world so um should we start with a little bit of troubleshooting sure. so i know that for a lot of people one of the reasons they'll be kind of coming into this interview is they actually want to work in schools they know we work in schools and they want to know how to do it so do you want to kind of give me a bit of an overview of how how do i convince my local school to teach parkour i've got a wee gym but i'm not in schools how do i do it Sure, I I have to share a a quick, what's gonna seem like an extremely tangential story. I'll make it very brief. I got to work the, the, one of the most successful Broadway plays ever was Annie. Have you heard of it? Yes. Okay. I got to work with the producer of the touring version of Annie. Awesome. And he wrote a, a book that has my favorite title of any book ever written. And it's from coffee boy to producer in just 50 years. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, when you go. And I, I think that's so critical because our world wants you to believe in overnight success. They show someone on star search and they're like, oh, look at this overnight success. She came out of nowhere. And here's a video of her singing when she was three. Well, okay, hang on. The story doesn't line up here, right? She's 22 years old, came out of nowhere. She's been singing every day since she was three and practicing and putting in the work. And that's why she's on The Voice at age 22, right? Yes. They didn't just find her sitting in a closet and go, hey, can you sing something? Oh, wow, we're going to put you on The Voice. It really doesn't work that way. And I think that that's an important uh, entree to getting into schools. We did, uh, I wanna say hundreds, but that would be an exaggeration, but we did quite a fair number of free events with schools, whether it was their walk to school day, their fitness fair day, um, things along those lines. We did quite a lot of those. And it turns out that the connection who actually went and put parkour in DC public schools, which was our first school system, had heard about one of those days three years prior. 
So it took three years for that to percolate through the system and reach uh, who, as it turns out, is the director of health and physical education for DC public schools. And for her to say, wow, that's, that's a thing that I want in our school system. So those efforts take a long time. I think that, that what some people, what we all want to be the answer is, oh, find the person who has this title in your school system, call them up and say this, and, <laughs> and it'll go. And, and that's just not true. It's, it's, it's start working with people, build relationships with people. One of, one of the, the most important things, and this doesn't just apply to parkour in schools, I, I believe it applies to everything in life, is the people who get things done are people who have a relationship and a champion slash sponsor. If, if you can't get someone in your school system excited about parkour, then you're never gonna convince them. You can't take someone who doesn't want parkour in schools and make them put parkour in schools. That'll never happen. But what you could do is take someone who doesn't know they want parkour in schools yet, get them excited about it, and then go from there. Yeah, I think I'd, um... I love that way of putting it um, and it also speaks a lot to our story like I started off so my first experience teaching in a school was off the back of another guy I knew who had managed to open up and teach in a school near me and it took him five years to get to the point where he could begin teaching in schools and that's when I started teaching in schools and that was 10 years ago. So once you begin to sort of roll out that maths, you realize that the reason that we have a successful school program is built on 15 years of hard work. Um, and I think what I would add to what you're saying is you don't go from zero to a lot. Instead, you offer free classes or you try and find funding or you follow every single piece. And eventually someone says, oh, and I might, kind of try putting you in my school for five weeks and you go yes and then you've got to be great like this is the other thing you've got to be exceptional and they've got to want you back and love it and then you've got to deliver that one class for you know a whole semester and then if you're really really good and the next semester it'll be full again and then we went from one and then one and then three and then four and then five, and then each term, we just sort of added one or two until we were at a point where parkour was common, parkour was a thing that people brought into schools. And then we started getting opening up and being able to go into so many schools because of that really slow foundation that was built over time. So I definitely sort of echo that idea of um, there's an awful lot of work to put into it. But that's not to say it can't be done. Like parkour is now common enough that you can probably just start emailing the people in the schools or the parents or get the parents in your class to start asking their schools and begin just having those discussions. And it will involve free classes and it will involve having to do work for nothing. Um, and it will never make you much money because it's schoolwork, but it, that it does eventually break down and start to become a thing for sure. Yes. Um... One of my other favorite quotes that I have to throw in here, and I'm going to totally butcher this, is uh, if you want men to build a boat, 
don't send them out to gather wood, teach them a love for the sea. Right, and that's, that's sort of what we're dancing around here is, is getting that one parent who's really excited about it and really wants to have it. If you can get oh, yeah. someone to want to have it, then the rest will be possible and will fall into place. You don't want to put parkour in a school system where nobody wants it. There's just yeah. no, no point, right? You have to find, find your champion, find, your, find the people who are gonna be in your, in your party when you go riding off to do this thing and, and get them to be, to be there with you. Uh, one, one thing I wanna throw in really quickly because I don't know if there's gonna be the right place to say it is how much work Travis Graves did on our parkour school program. So uh, calling me an expert on parkour in schools really isn't fair when Travis did so much of the work that made this happen. He sat uh, with the teachers and built the whole curriculum. He has run the teacher training days. So he has put in a tremendous amount of work. And at just about anything we talk about, I could talk about what he contributed to it. So I just want to take a moment to to put that in as an overall thing, that this wasn't something that, that Mark Turok did, it's something that American Parkour did and largely Travis Graves, so. Awesome. That's cool to know as well, because um, maybe in the future I can try and grab Travis and bring him on here as well and have a wee chat with him. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I could say the same thing. Like, um, I think uh, I definitely led the school's program for access, but. Uh, right now, uh, the day-to-day -day delivery of it is Adam Romain uh, um, and Rory Ferguson and Seb Kochi and all the coaches, much more than it is me. I just sort of stand around talking as if I know what I'm talking about. Um, but then... You're, you're uh, great at that. You're great at that. Keep it up. It is, it is my job to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, do you want to give a quick overview just for the... So the, the, for those who are listening with an interest in this, what sort of official documentation does the US require when you're moving into the public school sector? What are they looking for? That is such a weird question with such a weird answer. Uh, so we, we have to take it back to a, a, a very frustrating step, which is there is no such thing as an official sport in the United States. So <laughs> there is no governing body in charge of sports in the United States. The NFL is a franchise. You buy a team and you get NFL licensed merchandise and that's it. And it's the same with the National Hockey League, the uh, uh, baseball, so there is no governing body for sport here. There are pseudo government agencies that talk about sport and play and counsel on exercise and, and things like that, but there is no official seal, so to speak. And, and that's difficult because it makes becoming a national governing body for parkour, like we are with USPK, it makes that process it's very gray in a, in a lot of ways. And it, it takes a lot more work because if there were an application process and some known set of hurdles, no matter how long or how tall the ladder, but you could climb it rung by rung, that would be much easier. 
and, and instead there is no such thing here. Um, the, the two sort of important things, I, I wrote a safety document on parkour. So, and, and then I, I certified it and I stamped it myself. And then I put my company's logo on it and I signed it with my name. Uh, there's a theme there. <laughs> I verified all the information, <laughs> um, nice. but yeah, I wrote literally a, a two-page safety document on parkour and why it's safe, and and put in what were as as close to factual statistics as I could possibly gather. Because again, injury data in the U.S. isn't collected the same way as it is in countries with uh, socialized <coughs> better healthcare systems than the US. <laughs> um, injury data isn't collected the same way. Injury reporting doesn't work the same. Uh, one, one thing that I'm very happy to say is we've had over 7,500 kids in our parkour in schools program without a single reported injury. And there are pretty strict reporting standards for the injuries that happen in a school physical education class. So that is a pretty neat statistic that, that I can say is factual. Uh, now, does that mean that nobody twisted an ankle? I'm certain, I, I would be upset if nobody twisted an ankle out of 7,500 kids. It, it means we're not trying hard enough, but, um, but it means that there have been no broken bones, no serious injuries from the parkour training. And, and I think that that's pretty important and goes a long way towards other people opening the door for other people. If our program went in and we had a higher injury rate than other activities, that would have very quickly set red flags and, and shut things down. Whereas instead we've gone in with a program that is very demonstrably safe. And so I think that that helps open the door for other programs and other school systems. Yeah. We actually had our first two reportable accidents they happened like within a couple of weeks of each, different coaches different places with a couple of weeks of each other as these things our first two reportable accidents in six years in schools recently um, wow. and the, the thing about it that's really interesting is that we got in six years and we just hadn't had any sort of accident yet um, and they were both really freak weird ones as well um, it doesn't like it's it's really I think it is important to note that the way we teach in schools is probably even safer than when we're teaching in gyms. And I want to get to that in a second. But I do also want to quickly cover uh, the UK position and probably what the rest of the European position will be like. Because we were in schools well before parkour was an officially recognised sport in the UK. And the process of the official recognition did not really have any effect whatsoever on what we were seeing on the ground with regards to how easy it was to get into schools. Um, the schools were mostly concerned with... Um, whether or not we could provide a proof of qualification and a proof that we were insured. There was very strict standards of what the insurance was. And so we had the correct insurance and the correct qualifications and we'd done the, the relevant courses so that we could teach children. And if we could provide proof that we had done those things, then we were asked to provide um, risk assessments and child protection um, guarantees and policies and a whole list of policies, which again not too dissimilar from you i wrote um from nothing i kind of mostly googled it and then put them all down put the access logo on and signed it was a very similar process um and then it was a case of refinement of what we were doing like we meet a new uh go into a new school district and we'd 
start kind of going, okay, well, you need, here is our qualification and here is our risk assessment and here is this and that and this. Uh, and I'm fascinated by actually risk assessment. I'm very nerdy about it, but we probably don't want to get into that right now. Um, but we have really nice risk assessments and we kind of try and keep to them. We have standard operating procedures which work in schools um, because we are, just like you, really interested in keeping that risk low, keeping that injury rate down. Um, but yeah, there's generally when you're moving into the school, they will have they will have a lot of requirements and you will just, as you said, have to go through them all. But they're not too difficult and can mostly be Googled. Um, and if you find like a power mom, like one of these people who's like just desperate to get you into their school, then you'll find that they'll be interested in helping you, especially if you kind of come with the right intent in mind. Yeah, um, yeah, very much. So uh, kind of the next area I kind of want to move on to is um, what the experience of teaching, the first experience of teaching and working in a school is like. Um, I'd love to talk about uh, the difference between working in a school and a, and a regular parkour class. So probably let's talk, let's kind of focus on after school programs where we are the ones delivering in schools right now. What do you think the main differences are when you're going into a school from what you can do in your gym? That would really be a better question for Travis. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. but, but I'll, I'll, I'll still address it. Uh, in, in our gym, like you said, and, I, and I'm, I'm hesitant to use this word, but I'm going to anyway. In our gym, we expose the kids to a lot more risk. And that exposure is purposeful. To me, that is a critical component of parkour training. One of the first things, I, I don't coach kids very often um, anymore, but when I do, I scare them. Uh, the first thing I do is I walk up to a metal bar and I, I rap on it and I say, hey, see this? It's made of metal. You know what happens when you hit it? Me either, but you're probably gonna bleed, right? And so giving them an understanding, and this is, this is a critical part of parkour training for kids for me, well, for kids and adults, giving them the understanding that they are in charge, that they are in control. For so much of their time, they're told what to do. They're told that somebody else is in charge of their safety, of their, of their everything. And they're told to look externally for all of this guidance. And so I find that kids spend very little time looking internally for guidance. And mm -hmm. That, that's a critical component for me that I, I want to be there. I want them to know you are the one who makes this activity safe by controlling yourself, by acting in a, in a safe manner. And, and that is certainly a difference because in schools, we can't have the same level of, of risk exposure. We have a, a less homogenous group of children mm. and a less homogenous group of parents. Parents who bring their kids for parkour classes probably want their kids to go out and skin their knees, right? They want their kids to get out of the house. They want their kids to do something active where in schools, we don't know what the parents would want for the child necessarily, right? We, we have the whole gamut. We'll, we'll have parents that, that are athletic and active and, and believe in that set of values and then we'll have people on other areas of that spectrum and so yeah. I, I think it's important to to recognize and and be um 
be cognizant of that and and uh, sort of honor it as well, because just simply trying to to smash it and say, hey, everybody should everybody should see fitness as one way and everybody should hold it as important. Well, that's great to say, but it's not going to happen, right? You've yeah. got to be able to you've got to be able to speak to people, and I'm going to say. Uh, on the other side, right? The other end of the spectrum, if I'm talking to someone whose views on fitness aren't the same as mine, I can't just shout my views and think that somehow they're gonna magically come across some line and, and be standing shoulder to shoulder with me. I have to reach in and, and say, well, well, why do you feel this way? Why do, why do you feel parkour is dangerous, right? Yeah. And, and see their perspective and then speak to them in terms that, that meet their expectation of reality. And so, yeah, I like that. Um, I like that you went straight to the, the fact that the groups that you're teaching are less homogenous, because that's a really important thing. And also, I like that you kind of talked about that level of consent that is brought about by someone walking into a parkour gym. Um, when we have like at the end of the day, a parent will turn up and they will go, OK, I want to expose my child to your culture. Whereas when you're in a school, you are you are you've got a greater audience but that's also going to give you a very different kind of classroom one where you've got to meet the needs of a much broader range of children and as a result of that your learning style really does need to change and i um one of the really interesting things about this idea is it speaks to what we were talking about with chris grant just last week so chris is a youth worker and he spent a lot of time talking about the idea of having to meet the kids where they are empower the kids let them to a certain extent choose what they're going to do for themselves and that very much speaks to how we can behave and treat them when they're in our gyms we can give them the power to fall and we can give them the power to make mistakes because if they fall like the parent knew they were coming here the parents saying the disclosure saying the parent knew what they were signing up to but if we have that experience in a school it's a problem because the parents sent their child to school. They had a basic assumption of the child was going to be safe in the school. And so what you deliver has to be different. Um, what kind of strategies, I know you're not delivering it specifically, what kind of strategies do you guys use and think about in order to mitigate those risks? So I think just, just choosing, first of all, we have much less equipment in a school than we do in the gym. And that's, that's a, that's a limitation, and it's it's a it's a very real limitation. I think um, one thing I want to say, and I'm going to take this slightly off track, but I think that when most parkour instructors think of a parkour program in school, parkour instructors are naturally creative, imaginative people, and we think of like just this huge setup with hundreds of kids running around learning at a fantastic rate and doing our vision of parkour and then we get to a school and we've got one little trapezoid box and one rail and and a couple of stepping pads and, and 30 go, okay. children this, this, yeah and, and and 30 children and and we go oh well this isn't exactly like the picture in my head, right? But but it really is the the reality of it. And mm -hmm. so we we have to we want to change reality. 
But in order to do that, we have to start at reality. We can't, uh, we can't start with, we have to have a vision of the future, but we have to start in the present. We can't start in that envisioned future because it doesn't exist yet. So we have to start with what's actually here and then build slowly, like you said, over 15 years, we have to build to that future that we want to see. And there's no reason not to dream big. We need to dream big, but we have to sometimes accept doing on a very small level, on a very small scale. Uh, one of the concepts I've been mulling over in my head lately as we're, as we're trudging through this coronavirus quarantine is kind of lessons of the piggy bank right? Just, just put a penny in every single day. And so with getting parkour programs in schools and then eventually getting those programs to be what we want them to be, don't wait until you're holding a $100 bill because you're not going to walk in and slam down a $100 bill on the table and go, here's the world's greatest parkour program, right? You're going to come in and go, wow, we, we've got uh, some 30-year-old equipment here that nobody's used, it's, it's dusty and rusty and, and whatever, but if I lay this on its side and I put this over here and I tilt this up, then I could teach three of the 20 things that I wanted to teach. But at least we, we start with those three and, and, and we build. Yeah, so. I fully agree with everything you're saying that I really think that um, the reality of the, the slow development um, is kind of sucky, but it's also, I kind of, I turn it around in my own head and see it's quite freeing sometimes because one of my favorite things about teaching after-school programs is that you get given, you know, 12 children for 10 weeks. And um, if you do really well, then hopefully they'll all come back next term. And if you do absolutely terrible, then some of them won't come back and you'll get a different group of kids, which means it's the ideal space for experimentation of how to teach parkour. And when you get it wrong, it, it's not very important. So it's this great little mechanism by which you can become an amazing teacher because you've got no equipment of any real sorts. You've got to keep them entertained for 10 weeks. Um, you don't get a choice. You walk in, you don't, they don't necessarily, they're not going to be necessarily that well behaved. Um, and you go in and you teach these programs and sometimes you leave after 10 weeks and feel like they've learned so much. And sometimes you feel like you have just about held on to your sanity. <laughs> um and it happens for like it happens no matter how good a coach you are sometimes you have that classes where it doesn't it doesn't work but it gives you that really great ability to keep on trying and iterating and playing with things and what we ended up um all of our school classes are really built around teaching a skill and building towards a game that can be done with minimal equipment so kind of the way we always do it is we know there's going to be almost no good equipment in there we use what we can we teach an important skill um, wherever possible, we try and attach it to some value. And those values are mostly built around like enjoying movement and playing, um, respecting each other and all the things we want to build in our parkour program, but just sort of building in these really physical ideas. Um, but they learn a skill such as how to land safely. That skill is reinforced by good quality coaching. And then they're allowed to play games that involve landing. So to be honest with you, our like... Nearly every single first class we teach in school is hopscotch. We teach them how to land and then we teach them hopscotch and we play hopscotch for an hour. And it's, it's great. It's loved. It's universally loved by, and then a lot of our time is taken up by playing 
um, grandma's footsteps and variations of TIG. Like most of my coaches are experts on 20 different types of TIG because mm-hmm. you can do it in a hall with 30 children and it's reasonably safe. Right. Um, and so much of what we do with those games and then we, when we attach movements to those games, so we attach our vaults to those games or our landings or our balance or our QM to those games, the children have an active interest in being better at the skill and then they apply the skill. And as a result, we're kind of internalizing a lot of those really strong movement ideas. Um, and the great thing about building into games is it's low risk and uh, the kids want to play. So we don't have to try and impart those values so strongly. Instead, it just becomes, well, if you want to play the game, these are the rules of the game. So you've got to play fairly. One of my favorites, uh, you'll probably love this, is um, Floor is Lava. I, th- I think if, there isn't a par- if there's a parkour coach out there who isn't regularly using Floor is Lava, start using Floor is Lava. It's one of the greatest games for teaching value that I can possibly explain to you. And the reason it's really important for teaching values, there's loads of ways to make floor is lava almost pointless if you cheat. So if you cheat during the game, you can find ways to create the rules such that when they cheat, the game becomes less fun. And if they can have a conversation, if a, if a young, if an eight-year-old boy is able to have a conversation, um, that's, that's specifically that hyper-competitive eight-year-old boy that's always a problem, can have a conversation about the fact that when you cheat, the game becomes less fun you've potentially changed their life. Right, right. Which is so huge. And it's such, and it's those, the ability to attach conclusions to the games that can speak to the rest of their lives that I find really interesting and what I'm trying to do with so much of our school program. Because I don't care if, I don't care if I go into a school and I do 10 weeks and the kids can't monkey at the end. Like, that's not important to me. But if they don't cheat in games because cheating is no fun, we probably changed their lives for the better. Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, I like, so, one, one thing I wanna uh, take off on that point real quick is when I design a parkour course, whether for kids or adults, I always try to create natural consequences. And I think that that's one of the things that our world lacks right now is natural consequences. We have all these rules and we don't know why. And some of those rules don't make any sense, right? And so clearly, like most people won't drive on the wrong side of the road because they understand the consequence of that and it's pretty bad, right? (laughs) That's a natural consequence. If you drive on the wrong side of the road, somebody will hit you head on and you'll both die. Um, But so many rules that we have really just have these made up rules or made up consequences that, that aren't real. Right, so just keying on your example of if you cheat at the game, it's less fun. That's what I call a natural consequence. It's an actual real consequence. And the more we can set things up to mimic reality in that way, instead of, oh, you cheated, you have to do press ups and run around the room and say your name backwards three times. Like who cares, right? That doesn't doesn't change that child's perception of whether cheating is good or bad. But if you can make the game not work or, or break for that individual who cheats, then I think that's, that's brilliant. And it's, it's a concept that I, that I really love. Um, do you give an example to this? Because it, it might seem a bit ephemeral to people when we play Floor is Lava, 
if the kids are succeeding and don't seem to be making any mistakes, we make the course harder. And so if they're cheating and the course gets harder, then they have to cheat even more. Whereas if they're failing, we make the course easier for them and we tell them this at the start. So as a result, the course should always be difficult for the group. And if suddenly, and if some of them, if they have to cheat, then the course will just get harder because it will look like they're succeeding. Suddenly they're decentivized towards cheating because it will make their experience less fun because it won't sit within that period of difficulty that is the most enjoyable period for them. It's a really practical variant on that idea. Um, but we're, let's sort of try and move away from that because one of the more interesting conversations that we'll have, because um, we, I think, for this discussion are probably in the minority, but we're right, so everyone else can shut up, is uh, the idea of PE teachers delivering parkour. Um, so the controversy is that parkour being this really unique and interesting sport uh, should be taught by parkour instructors. And obviously, if we get parkour instructors delivering parkour, then that's better for our industry because the parkour instructors have more work. Uh, we should not allow PE teachers or really try and stop PE teachers wherever possible delivering parkour. Who thinks that? Most parkour coaches that I know. Oh, well, good luck. See, <laughs> 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 see. See how many people's lives you can affect when you have to coach every single one of them yourself, right? So, yeah, I mean, first of all, just scalability, right? How, how, many, how many programs can you have? Again, we've had 7,500 kids. Every middle school seventh grader in the District of Columbia gets parkour as part of their PE class. There is no way, well, first of all, in the U.S., really, they don't allow contractors to teach regular classes. Teachers teach regular classes. So while they may allow you to come in and do a demonstration, we do field days at schools, which is, uh, which is great. We do presentations. We do what they call assemblies, where they bring all the kids together, and we jump around, and they jump around, and I talk about the history of parkour, and and tell them that flips are parkour and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, say that free running is not parkour. I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> you know, there's a difference every between major that. controversy you can hear. This is good. I, I'm, I'm just ripping through them. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it's going to be, if it's going to be an institutionalized program, then it has to be run by the institution. Mm -hmm. And so in my opinion, winning over the institution and getting the institution to do what we want them to is a, an ocean compared to a trickle of a faucet, right? Yeah. If, if we want to get parkour in every school, well, does that mean I have to find, there, there are, uh, the last I looked, and I'll, I'll butcher this number too, but over 99,000 public schools in the United States. Where am I gonna find 99,000 parkour instructors if I want every class to be taught by a parkour instructor? Or let's say that a parkour instructor could teach 10 different schools, right? Okay, yeah. Not gonna there's, happen. There's definitely some world, world 
some idea to explore there that parkour doesn't need to go mainstream but i think that um i don't really i, I get where the, where that argument could come from the idea that okay if you don't need parkour to go mainstream the people will find it who want to find it you don't need to go big the flip side being um you don't need the discipline that you teach that is inherently yours and is beautiful and wonderful to go into the mainstream but we are sitting here as businessmen and what our business is in teaching as many people the fundamentals as we can in the same way that there is a distinction to be made between parkour and free running and lado de deplacement and whatever Georges Herbert does and thousands of other movement disciplines of various sorts um, each of those is valuable and what you teach in your gym might be unique and if it is that's wonderful there is still an underlying baseline that a teacher of PE can teach. And in the same way that your local PE teacher is not as good a basketball coach as the local basketball teacher, they can still give an effective introduction, which will in the long run, create kids who might be interested in what you're doing and act as another signpost towards your parkour world. Like, the fact that we have thriving private kids classes is linked with the fact that we have that we reach thousands of kids in the local schools um right and now of course the quality of what the teacher does when it comes to the accuracy of parkour will be lower but that doesn't really matter because eventually those kids will probably end up in your classes at least some of them will the ones who really care and then you'll have larger classes full of kids who do get it because they come to you. So I definitely argue that so long as we do it in a way, in fact, it's important that we do it in a way that gives the teachers really good tools and makes them want to use it. And if we can do that, I think that it will just benefit everyone. I agree completely, 100%. I think one of the issues that I see with the, uh, we'll call them the people who don't want parkour in schools or only want to teach it themselves, is that they have somehow put parkour itself on a pedestal. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to make a, a bold statement that should only be used in its entirety and I'm going to say- So I should just cut this bit out? Yes, right in half. Just as has happened to me on, on national news many, many times. I've learned to never use the word but in an interview <laughs> because they will chop it right there. <laughs> but, I'm, but however, I, I am going to say this. I don't care about parkour. I care about improving people's lives and parkour is a wonderful tool for doing that. Heard it here first, Mark Turok doesn't care about parkour, right? Okay. Right there, that's <laughs> it. End of interview, cut. <laughs> no, I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, um, and it's kind of, I'm, I'm also, like, it's not that I'm not attached to the name, I'm very attached to the name um, parkour, but I, I see it as a tool to deliver a whole bunch of excellent things. And if we have to bastardize a little bit to help people, then we'll bastardize it a little bit. The, the discipline can't come before people's happiness. If it does, 
then we've failed in our basic duty, which is to, as, as educators, we're just to help people. Well, and, and, and the discipline fails. If the discipline is not adaptable, right? All, all, all disciplines grow and change. Mm-hmm. And they should grow and change in a way that serves humanity. Yeah. What what good what good is parkour if we preserve it and put it in a box? Imagine if if the the original French founders who didn't want to share it. Imagine if they never did. Right. And so anyone now saying, oh, well, we have to be careful about sharing parkour because it will be misunderstood. Sorry, you don't you don't get to say that you're too late and you're a hypocrite. Because yeah. if nobody shared it, you wouldn't have it. <laughs> so and we misunderstood there, it horribly. There, there are already there are already changes and and advancements, and there are people doing amazing things that we hadn't thought of. Um, I'll, I'll parallel for a moment to the the BMX world and this guy named Matt Hoffman, who uh, I got to meet when I was sixteen. And saw him, you know, we had, I had built many quarter pipes when I was a kid, but seeing Matt Hoffman go no handed nine feet out of a quarter pipe just blew my mind and, and changed my world drastically in terms of what was possible on a BMX bike. And I think if, if we look back five years to Kong Gainer or things like that and Granted, I, w- I won't call these core movements of parkour, but still part of the value of parkour for me is showing humans what they're capable of. And in that respect, the advancement from one or two people in the parkour community having done uh, front flip to cat or double front or double back or back full or whatever gymnastic or to, to come back to potentially a simpler one, the climb up wasn't a thing in 2004. Um, oh, sure. Like what, what you see Ryan Ford doing now with his type three climb ups, like uh, there's this wonderful picture of uh, Blue Devil in 2003 in one of the first ever jams doing like an elbow climb up, the sort of thing that we cringe at now. But climb ups didn't really exist. Well, for Seb, ago. they did. So. If you know okay. Seb, I can I can hide behind his lats. His lats are. I do like... know, I do know Seb. The other <laughs> thing I, I, that made you made me think of there was um, one of the favorite things that I've ever heard Dan Edwards say. Um, he he was very into martial arts before he got into parkour, and he was constantly interested in the fact that you'd meet the masters of the discipline. And there were these like old, decrepit, broken men that could no longer move, who could no longer do everything. And they were kind of brought out as the perfect example of form. And they were just, they were like the discipline that they had dedicated their lives to had broken them. Right. And so he kind of eventually realized that they were a bunch of charlatans and went and found the old men who were physically fit, who could still move and do crazy things because their discipline was clearly good for them. Right. And that was one of his big drivers to get into parkour. He, he, t- he says, kind of like, these are healthy human beings. I want to be this when I'm older. I right. really which, like that which, idea. Which one do you want to be? And I see that 
a lot in in some of the um, I, I I'm going to offend a lot of people now, but uh, I I call uh, the classic discipline stand up bullshit martial arts. So and that's what I did. I did 12 years of it. So uh, I say it with love. But when you when you look at so many of the of the masters of that, there there are people in their in their 50s and 60s with 50 and 60 extra pounds of weight on the front of them. And mm -hmm. that is not, that's not the model that I aspire to. And I don't care if they're good at wrist locks because they're, they're not healthy and they're not, they're not uh, able to do the things that I want to do to enjoy my life. I want to go rock climbing and, and again, hop on rocks and logs and climb trees and, I'm just not seeing it with with that group of people. So, yeah, you you should you should find someone who you want to imitate and want to look like, which is where my initial uh, strong attraction to David Bell came in. Is I said, wow, well, I want to be like that guy. Like, yeah. look at him move. I want to be like that. So that that's a really critical point for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, before I kind of move us on to the next topic, do you need to go at five or are you okay to overrun by 15 minutes? Uh, I'm fine uh, with 15 minutes. I'm, I'm gonna grab something and wipe my nose real quick. Okay. For those all watching, uh, we are taking a short break while M2 wipes his nose. We'll be back shortly. Hey, is this live? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, We've spoken a lot about what it means to teach in schools, why we choose to do it, how you go about doing it, but I kind of want to now pull us to um, something that you will have a lot more to say on than I will, which is um, what do you need to teach parkour in schools in terms of equipment? And then what, if you wanted to start developing school equipment and start helping schools get better, start improving the equipment in schools. Uh, what are the first steps in that process? Cool. So th this brings me back to something that you, you touched on earlier and I wanna expand on now. And some people are gonna lose their minds when I say this, but what is parkour, right? And I think still in this day, if you ask 20 parkour coaches what parkour is, you will not get the same answer three times. You might get the same answer twice. Uh, so for the purpose of answering your question, I'm going to say that parkour is a training system. I like, I like to use the word discipline personally. Someone calls it sport, art, discipline, whatever. I'm, I'm not against their view. Uh, I just prefer the term discipline because of what I want people to get out of it. And part of that does come from my martial arts background. Uh, but I want people to get values as well as improvement out of it. And I think that if you, parkour can be done for fun, but that's sort of random. And, and randomizing, yes, play will lead to improvement, but systemized play will lead to better improvement. And that's, that's what I've learned from parkour and the founders of parkour. They, they systemize the game of tag, right? I think every kid, whether the word parkour ever entered their, their life or not, 
put a stick some distance from the curb and tried to jump to it or a stone and then and then moved it out an inch and saw if they could jump to it. What they didn't do is go back to that same spot the next day and do it again and 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 again until they became the level of the yamakaze, right? So that's where I'm going to use the term discipline. And I'm going to say that that in, in, its, in its basic form for me, parkour is learning a set of skills and values. And that's important because when we say, well, what do you need to train parkour? Well, I can teach the skill of balance, landing, rolling with only a floor. I can teach the skill of uh, what I call a, a tic-tac, and I use the term tic-tac to be any redirection of your momentum using your foot, whether it's straight up, as in the first step in a wall climb, or diverting at an angle, that can all be taught with a wall. And so any school that we go into is going to have both a floor and a wall. Those we can, we can take as basic assumptions. We can do quite a bit with that. Further, we can do ground variations of almost every vault. Can I take a moment just to remind people when they go into their schools to check the quality of the walls? Because sometimes walls are built with plasterboard and feet go through walls. That is, that is a great reminder. It's, it's not a problem we have here in the States where the schools are indistinguishable from prisons. So ah, we, we have a lot of plasterboard walls oh, in gyms, yeah. which doesn't make sense to me because you'd think that they would know, but still. That does not make sense at all, no. <laughs> so yes, always check your surfaces, one of the base tenants of parkour. So yeah, so again, could we go in and using that definition, could we teach a set of skills and values with no equipment? Yes. Would that be parkour? Mm. It's, not, it's not the parkour that I want. Mm. But again, if, if that first step, if, if, if I went to a school and I taught a four-week program using no equipment at all, and the kids loved it, and they improved their balance, and they improve their self-awareness. That for me is teaching the man the love for the sea. Mm -hmm. And that might lead to, hey, can I bring in a vault box? Cool, can I bring in a balance beam? Can I bring in a rail trainer or a rail setup? And in, in schools this year in, in Washington DC, they're, they're doing a new round of equipment ordering added adding what we call a tack box. So just a slanted ramp that can be set against the wall, set up to be a double-sided ramp, set against another piece of equipment. Ours also have a rail attachment so they can attach it to their vault box. So now you've got vault box, rail, and slanted surface that you can do spin tricks and all other kinds of things on. Those are going into the schools this year. So it's, it's three or four years in, they're adding another piece of equipment that if that were the first piece of equipment I tried to get in, probably wouldn't fly. But again, after, after getting through this, they now want more, mm -hmm. right? And I think this, this is an important part and uh, something that, 
that I think that a lot of parkour coaches fail at, and I'm gonna take a slight tangent here, is parkour coaches are by nature, for the most part, very generous giving people. They become coaches because they want to give. One of the things that I see that I'm going to call an error is they give everything they have on the first day. And if you went to a restaurant and they gave you every dish they had and they fed you until you were ready to vomit, you probably wouldn't ever go back to that restaurant. But if you went to the restaurant and you had one dish and it was wonderful, then you'd probably go back and try some of their other dishes. So I just, I caution against uh, sort of vomiting on trying to give a school an entire complete program course in the first hour you're not gonna mm. you're not gonna get the kids from from zero experience to what we consider parkour in the first hour or maybe even in the first week or the first four weeks we have to give them a piece of it that's the right size that allows them to have success at what they're learning and to want to be hungry for that next piece and i think that that's that's critical in, in my answer to you saying, you know, what, what does parkour in a school look like and what does teaching parkour in a school look like and how do we design the equipment for that? And my answer is we have to create the need and demonstrate the need for that equipment by showing how effective the training methods are. Mm, I like a lot of that. Um... I especially like that sort of framework about what you're showing the very first time you go into a school. So it speaks so much to what we're trying to communicate with this, which is that if you go into a school for the first time and all you do is demonstrate that you have, that you can stand in front of a group of young children, control them and have them run around, make them happy and then have them sit down again and you can show competence, then you've signaled everything the school's interested in. Like they don't necessarily, they don't, the school doesn't really care about parkour. They care about strong, positive role models who can control the kids and look like they know what they're doing, doing something that looks like it's positive. And if they can meet some learning outcomes along the way, that's even better, which is a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, negative way of looking at things, but it's true. That's what they it, really it's want. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's yeah. reality. Um, and so a lot of what you're saying there really speaks to that very base truth of what's actually going on. You know, teachers are overworked, um, schools uh, are not getting the physical education requirements they want. And if you can come in, make the kids run around, show that you're in control of them and show some sort of progression, they'll be very, very happy. Um, which is a lot easier and a lot harder than you might think. Um, speaking to the idea of uh, equipment, I also like the way you talk about um, a very gradualist approach, very much. We are, we, are only, we are six years into our partnership with Edinburgh City Council, and we're only now beginning to talk about, hey, if you spent a little money on equipment in your schools, we could deliver more stuff, and we could train your staff on how to use this. And we use, um, we use a rail setup with a... Uh, where we have lots of balance beams of different heights that stack on top of each other, which we really like because all the kids can learn to balance and all the kids can learn to vault on the rails. And specifically, when it goes away, it's 
this width, which uh, schools with limited space, you might not have that so much in the States, but oh, we, uh, most we of, do. Storage yeah. is huge. If you show them something that, that takes up 10 feet, they, they don't want it. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that we can produce something that's two meters by 50 centimeters uh, by 50 centimeters and they'll go, oh, okay, we could store that. And actually it's potentially enough. Um, but even then it's a case of we're six years into the relationship and that's where we can begin having that discussion. Um, you're obviously even further in and you're having a much more complicated discussion. But then obviously equipment's a much bigger deal for you because you're a builder, whereas I'm a teacher. I'm like, well, what, what's the basic minimum I can get away with that still works? Um, so let's kind of roll around to a final question for you, which is what does an ideal school's parkour program look like? So uh, so, some, something happened very recently that, that makes me incredibly, incredibly proud. And there is a school in Washington, D.C. that's being redesigned who has ordered one of our parkour kits for their leisure area. And to your point earlier of when parkour is that normal boring thing that everybody had to do in school. We've gotten the parkour program to the point where they want parkour equipment where all children can have access to it all times just to go and play with it. And for me, that's, that's huge because that's taking a step beyond just the teaching portion of it. So it, it's getting parkour to be a recognized normal activity. So I want parkour, uh, like you said, to be a, a program where kids sort of don't even realize it's a thing, right? Name parkour, not name parkour. We're going to balance class. We're going to physical education class, right? Physical education class to me should look like parkour, whether they call it parkour or not. So, uh, ideal program for me really has has a couple of elements to it like i said i, I i'm a, flan, a fan of the term discipline and there are certain values that i want people to get out of training parkour uh, first and foremost of those is self-reliance which i believe is the only true path to self-respect I believe that you can't have self-respect without self-reliance. If you rely on other people for everything and you rely on other people to tell you what to do and what to think and how to be and for help with everything, then why would you have self-respect or true self-respect? So for me, that is a, a key component of what parkour training brings about is somebody can say you're beautiful and you go, oh, and then they go, you're ugly, and you go, oh, right? So they, they gave that to you and they took it away instantly. But if, if you make a precision jump to a rail, and I don't care if it's six inches or, or six feet or two meters or whatever, nobody can take that away from you because you accomplished it. And that to me is, is the, the crux of the value of parkour training is 
you accomplish these things for yourself, right? We as teachers give the path, right? We don't do the precision jump for anybody. We don't do the vault for anybody. We give them tools, leadership, and guidance to do it for themselves. And so for me, that's, that's the, the kind of critical component. And so what I would like to see is, is a, a space where kids can actually be challenged. And the other important thing that I want to see is normalizing failure. I think that, that we have this terrible relationship with failure where we think of it as failure. <laughs> and, and, and we think of it as, as that being a stopping point where to me, failure is a starting point. You, you often don't learn if you do something well. And my example for that is some of the best athletes are terrible coaches because they don't even know what they're doing. They just do it, right? And I, I wish I had that. I so wish I had that, but I don't. I'm a terrible athlete. So I know every single correction and every step of the way and every fear and trepidation and all of those things. And I think that's what helps make me a good coach is when I see somebody failing, I know who that failure because I have, I have lived it. Believe me, I've lived it long and hard. So, but making that the idea that failure is an essential component of success and that by falling down and getting up and falling down and getting up and by missing and learning and learning good judgment, right? Often comes from good judgment comes from making bad decisions, right? So sort of all of those things for me need to go into a, a good program. Did I answer yeah. your question at all? Or did I just babble for like half an hour? I don't, what time, what day is it? <laughs> I think, um, I, I mean, it's, it's a, the question in itself is designed to give you that moment to wax lyrical. So I'm glad you did because it's very important to me that, um, I get, it's very important to me to kind of realize the motivations behind why we make the decisions we do. Um, I think this uh, discussion has led to, to really bring that idea of, okay, parkour is a tool by which we can help people and look through that and look that and see schools in that regard, which I think is really important. I think we've touched upon pretty much all the major pillars of what a school program should look like and how it should develop. And I'm really interested in the fact that it's touched on so many of the other discussions we've had um, in the podcast so far. So thank you so much for taking part in it. Thanks so much for kind of pulling all those things together. And I think we've had a really cool discussion. Um, how I end all these podcasts is I ask my guests if they have any literature on their general area and subject that they'd like to talk about or podcasts or anything else that they really um, want to take a moment to sort of tell people to read, watch, listen, or whatever. Hmm. I, I don't, uh, the, the only thing I would say is, is if, if somebody has an area where they feel that I could be helpful, reach out to me and I'll, I'll be glad to try and be helpful. I, I haven't really published very much yet. I, I try to make contributions to the Sturdy Made uh, Parkour Obstacle Construction Group on, on Facebook, uh, the Parkour Gym Owners Group on Facebook. 
make some contributions through United States Parkour Association, and we're we're creating a build committee there. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't have much published that I can that I can point to and say, hey, check this out. But certainly, if if there's a way that I can be helpful to somebody and they have questions, they're they're welcome to reach out to me. And if someone wanted to start their journey um, on building stuff, uh, would you recommend SturdyMade as the sort of the first port of call for that? If they wanted to build their own parkour equipment? Uh, yes, absolutely. SturdyMade Sturdy uh, Facebook group is a good place for that. What I would recommend first is grab a bunch of wood and a hammer and some nails and, and beat some stuff together and see how it feels and, and sort of work with the clay. You know, get, get, I think that um, my, my personal approach to things is I, is I like to try it and fail. And I like to, before I, before I seek advice, I might seek some advice first, but I, I really like to start with, with immersion so that when I go back and I watch a video on how to use a certain tool or something, I've already held that tool. I've already felt it. I've already seen what what my impression of what it did was and mm -hmm. then i'm i'm using that information to to further my knowledge instead of using it to form my knowledge if that that makes yeah. sense um it really speaks to this idea of um start small i think we, we've, we've hit upon it so many times do a simple thing do it well um fail miserably at it a few times until you get the hang of it and then do a slightly bigger thing there's this um you can actually read the history of how we've improved at building things and constructing things in like the first the first vault box we ever built is gone but like the second generation of vault boxes you know they're still a little bit rickety and they're not as well and then the third generation we're starting to get the idea and by the fourth generation where we are now like we can create a solid box and it works and we know what it's for and we know how to use it um, so you can kind of see the slow march of success in, in our own ability to build things as we went along. And I think uh, it's very important people appreciate that the first thing you build, the first thing you do, the first parkour class you teach will not be particularly good. And that's okay, because we want to normalize failure. Yeah, I, I, I just retired uh, one of the first vault boxes that I built. So 14 years. And... It was pretty rickety, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. So in in our in our gym, there's this great. It's almost like a parkour building museum because you can you can look at. We have all four generations of vault boxes there, and some have patches and repairs, and you kind of see where and and then the newest ones are just these kind of. I mean, really beautiful things. I feel like in in my in those, you know. 15, 16 years of specifically building parkour stuff, I, I have gained a lot of skills and tips and tricks from watching woodworking forums and all kinds of different sculpting forums and things like that. And so now when I build a piece, I, I have to say it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's not only a functional vault box, but uh, you know people have compared it to like fine furniture and not Ikea furniture, which is kind of nice. <laughs> nice. All right, let's uh, wrap up there. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been a great time talking to you. Uh, we're gonna finish the live stream. Thanks all for joining us. Um, um, I'll see you all soon.